Welcome to the Opera Biz Podcast, uncut and unfiltered, where we hang out with opera professionals and talk about life inside the industry. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. Allows me to uniquely give, like, the raps something specific. Be like, this is new industry standard. This is where we need to be. This is what we need to do. It's so helpful. You know, I just kind of started figuring all of this out recently and started working with Jonathan Eifert a little bit and just, just to try and get, just to get on the court with all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because I remember actually Lucas saying, um, you know, I've known Lucas for a long time and I remember him saying, you know, it's not enough to just be good at opera. Yeah. Right. And, And, you know, you really have to, as an artist these days, come to, come to grips with that yeah no one else is telling your story for you right that and and so first of all I mean like I knew that in my mind yeah of course but then to actually take that on because for me it's not a natural thing to be on Instagram all the time I'm not a Twitter whore well for most people over 25 it's not a yeah, it just doesn't didn't grow up with the screen in the hand. Yeah, and so it just and it doesn't feel natural to me. And I I have a story to tell, and I think it's a great story. Yeah, and I like when I get to share it with people. But doing it through those formats is completely unorganic for yeah. me. And so it's really it's been an experience. And now uh, you know that I like doing a video now doesn't it used to just I had all these edits in my mind right yeah. <laughs> first of all it's going to look like crap secondly I'm going to sound like an idiot although I know I'm a good interviewer yeah. I, I know this right yeah. I, and so but for me to actually just cross that hurdle of sitting down and putting my iPhone on a little tripod in front of me in the hotel room and making a video was like <laughs> it was like pulling teeth, yeah. you know. And then I did it, and and yeah, because um, Jonathan was like, "Could just make one, just like a three or four minute video, just, yeah. just, just that's all you need." And I did it. So I sat down, and he gave me a couple ideas to talk about, and I sat down and made the video, and it was nine minutes long. There you go. You know, and it, it felt like completely natural. But you know, for me, it's just been a shift of the mindset of being in the craft, yeah, to then saying. I'm doing this, and I'm doing it at a very high level. I need to make sure that that's understood because I also learned that, for example, last a year ago now, I was conducting the new production of West Side Story for the Bernstein Centennial at mm-hmm. Houston Grand Opera, directed by Francesca Zambello, and a production that was going to go everywhere. And you know, there are still people in the business that had no idea that I did that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and these are not. It's not because they're not involved or not paying attention. It's just because to get the ripples to go far enough to have the impact that you need exactly takes yeah. takes more work. And so I just kind of you know hit this point of thinking I'm doing all of these great things. I just want to make sure that everybody knows. Yeah, right. I'm not trying to you know be on the front page of every magazine or get an endorsement deal from Rolex or something right. like that. As you nice know, as that would be. Yeah, I'm sure if they want to give me a Rolex, I will wear it. But you, you know what I'm saying? I just want to make sure that people know about the cool stuff that I'm getting to do. Yeah. And not just people of, you know, people that I would like to engage me, but also people who have helped me along the way. Yes. 
right? And, and to have supported me and cheered me on and my teachers and my mentors and my family and friends just because they're happy for me when they know what's going on. Yeah. And so that's also an important, as, as in addition to furthering the career, also is, you know, letting other people have helped you be gratified. Absolutely. And um, so it's been an interesting, I'm still learning it, but he's, you know, he's been really helpful and just getting me started. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a matter of just getting that ball rolling. Yeah. And I, you know, I hate using cliches, but it, it has an inertia behind it. Yeah. Once you get going. And what's, you know, what I'm starting to realize about it is that the things that I think will come across as terrible or unprofessional are exactly what everybody finds authentic. Exactly. So that yeah. So the, so me sitting in my hotel room at the Town Place Suites in Minneapolis. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. With a tripod on top of a priority mailbox, you know, like so that I can like get a shot from a decent angle and like where do I put the lamp and yeah. like you know what I'm saying? Like all of this dumb stuff that has me convinced that it's probably going to ruin any respect that anyone has for me when they see I've done something so unprofessional, yeah. that that's actually what people are like, oh, cool, this is a real person who does real things and, and has a real life. Exactly, and that, and that, that ultimately, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of taking this whole thing of we do all of these amazing things and, and hard things, right? And our craft takes years to learn and develop. Yeah. And it's a, it's a lifelong journey and it's a lifelong sacrifice and all of this. And that it's okay just to make a little corny video and put it on the internet. You Absolutely. know what I'm saying? And, and, yeah. and, and I also, it's also been cool for me to look at other people like Joyce DiDonato. I, I just... The queen I, of social media. The queen of social media, but you know what I love about her is there's an incredible authenticity yeah. that she just bleeds. Yeah. And, 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 and you also, it's no beyond a shadow of a doubt in everything that she does that there's a grace and, and a generosity to it yeah. that I think is just, I admire that so much yeah. and and I just you know remember seeing her on social media and thinking you know the way that she is over those formats is really authentic to yeah. me and and I I can relate and 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 then you know to see her watch videos of her teaching master classes and everything and how she's so generous and yeah. that inspired me too because I thought those are things I see myself that way mm -hmm. And that's the way I try and be in a room and in a rehearsal room or in a coaching room or on the podium. And so how do I translate that to kind of the way I am in a digital format? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. It's all been, it's been an interesting, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's an I ongoing thing. as a know? teaching tool sometimes because, like you said, she's got that rich authenticity. I always tell, I, I use her as an example and tell people like, listen, Everybody wants to play a game and be like, oh, well, if I do this just right, and then this just right, and then this follows this, then I'm going to have this career and stuff. When in reality, people want you to be unabashedly you. Right, right. You know, unapologetically you. Yeah, be professional, be gracious. Um, but they can get cookie cutter anywhere else. That's, yeah, that's a good way to put it. If you give that authenticity, then your viewers, followers, friends, whomever is paying attention, um, they have an emotional attachment to what you're doing. Yep. I mean, it's not going to be like a heavy 
we're not talking like heavy dripping emotion, but sure. but they feel a, a personal contact to what you're doing, which for people who are working in the classical world is a great bridge to classical music in a modern age. Right. right. They see that we're not this hoity-toity group up on the top of a pedestal. Right. Real human beings who go through the same stuff. We just happen to have a different job that's extremely niche. And, and, well, and, and then maybe we can also, at that point, start to approach dropping classical from music. Exactly. You know, I mean, yes. <laughs> like, Very true. Please, God, can we ever get there yet? I mean, but this sort of, you know, that these things are not that far apart. Yeah. God knows media loves labels. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, we all do. I mean, we all, we, we, you know, we quantify in language, so yeah. it, it's, uh, we all do. But that's true, you know, and if you, and if you bypass the language and show your life, right. then it's, it's not classical, it's here and now. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And whether it's a contemporary opera or not, it's being done by contemporary people. Yeah. Right. Yes. And, and so, and, and it's being done in a, in some way in a contemporary vernacular. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, even if it's a orchestral performance of something, well, we, you know, we are using modern instruments, or at least I don't do, you know, period instrument work, so right. I am. So already that changes the lens yes. and, and, and puts it in, into a more contemporary format um, and something that's Yeah, we're using modern instruments, modern tuning. It's not... Right. Yeah. And people who, you know, I mean, have an entirely different, you know, approach um, that's developed since then too. So mm -hmm. I don't know. That's to me kind of one of the most fascinating things about what we do is it will always, no matter how old the piece is, it's always dependent on modernity. Yes. Because there's no way we can unlearn everything that we've learned since, you know, Nozze di Figaro was premiered, right? Right. Um, so even if we try and go back and do it in a way that's very, stylistically appropriate to that period, there are still things that are deeply ingrained that we can't unhear and we can't unknow. Right. So, um, and I, I love that, that I love the amalgamation of what we do. Um, uh, it fascinates me to no end. Yeah. And and even if that doesn't even have to mean it's contemporary opera, right? That's a right. whole nother, that's a whole nother level. Yeah. Um, you know, creating something like the fix in this development process we've been in for years with this piece. Yeah. That, you know, that doesn't culminate tomorrow night. It just takes another step tomorrow night. Right? <laughs> exactly. You know, <laughs> no, that's, that's a conversation Alan and I had yesterday uh, was exactly that. The, the beauty of working on a new piece, a premiere, is that it still has an evolution that's going to take place. Yeah. Throughout, throughout its performances, through its piece, it's going to create traditions of its own. And the premiere is, is, is middle to beginning of that whole process. That's right. That's right. It's not, okay, we're here. It's this way forever. No, right. There's a, there's a whole journey that it's going to take, that's going to take place. Absolutely. I, I think that's exciting. I, it's interesting coming into this because, you know, I've been involved in this development process with The Fix, but then also um, I, I'm the artistic advisor in Austin, mm -hmm. and that involves conducting one production a year. And so this... Um, season was Silent Night. Yeah. So I just did that, and then I came. I came here, but Silent Night was developed here. Right. Right. And premiered in 2011. Yeah. They revived it here last autumn, so it, that's a piece that's near and dear to the Minnesota Opera um, Company and the public. Yeah. Uh, and so it's you know it's interesting to look at these pieces alongside of each other and just see how Silent Night has had this arc. And here's one that's just starting to 
you know, lift off the runway. Yeah. Right. It's been, it's, that's really cool yeah. to kind of have both of those experiences very near each other mm-hmm. is really interesting. Where did you come in um, with the fix? When did you start working on this, with this project? I met Joel, um, man, when was that? I don't know. Several years ago through DJ Spar, another okay. a composer uh, who I know. And um, they're, you know, they're longtime friends. And um, I went up to Washington to see the premiere of DJ's opera, Approaching Ali, and I met Joel there. So we knew each other, kind of kept in touch a little bit, you know, loosely. Um, and then, you know, it was announced that he was writing this. I sent him a note and I said, hey, congrats. That's awesome. Really you know, excited for you. They do great stuff up there. And then it was still another while before, you know, they started involving me. And I, you know, got the, um, Dale Johnson was the artistic director. And then now he's transitioned into, a, a, you know, an advisory role guiding mm-hmm. the, new, the New Works Initiative creative process. Right. Um, and he came to hear me conduct. I, he had known me for years since I was finishing graduate school, but he came to hear me conduct. And um, Ryan, I've known for many years. And so anyway, all of that sort of culminated in that they wanted to invite me for something. And also at the same time, I had been doing world premieres kind of you know, coming along, I'd done a few at Houston Grand Opera and um, other places. And so it just, this, this project became that fit. Mm-hmm. And um, we, that's what we arrived at. And um, I, I was thrilled that that's where it led, that that's where all those conversations <laughs> ended up. Because I, I wanted to, I like Joel's music. Um, I wanted to see the guts of the process here at Minnesota Opera because they do have a really unique process of development and in-depth process, specifically with the orchestral workshop that's involved in the process is very unique. And um, so I was thrilled that this is where we ended up because it also, the great thing about it for me is it gave me an all really a two-year relationship with the company as opposed to okay, we have Timothy Myers on the books to conduct Rondine or Traviata or something. Yeah. And he'll appear for five or six weeks and then disappear. And <laughs> right. if, if that went well enough, we might just talk again, you know. <laughs> if it didn't, then we won't. Um, but this actually gave me a chance to really get to know the company deeply and um, to, to work more closely with Dale and with Ryan and now Preeti Gandhi and um, you know people who have been colleagues and supporters uh, of mine mm-hmm. and um, yeah so it's really I'm I'm really glad that this is kind of how it all came together so I was involved it seems it's like about it's two kind of years an automatic mesh like it just yeah it's it was one of those great of times kind of when all together. the pieces sort of come together and they just crystallize in a way that makes a whole lot of sense yeah. Um, and as you know, that doesn't always happen in a career, right? right? Things happen for various reasons and in different ways. Yeah. But it's really, it's really rewarding when it happens this way. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, I had also grown as an artist to the point where I was bringing a skill set that could advance this project. Because mm-hmm. I had done enough world premieres, I knew how to really, I knew how to participate in the development of a piece as an active participant. Yeah. Not just as a 
facilitator or a bystander, right? Yeah. But to how how to win the trust of a composer and a librettist, and, and um, how to get inside their heads and see and hear the piece how they are, and 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 then from there how I can help move the needle with the piece and, and and you know contribute in a really meaningful way to the end product yeah um, and and you know to the end to the end product that, that premieres in the world premiere tomorrow night but then also a product that is strong and, and has legs and you know even me committing a lot of time you know just making inviting people Right, writing administrators at other companies and saying you need to you need to hear this piece. I mean, this is a, you know Joel's a talented composer. Yeah, Eric's a talented guy. You need to get to know this work. Yeah. Um, so, it's been really it's been amazing. What are some of the challenges of, of doing a world premiere? I mean, you've you've got a bunch under your belt. Do you have kind of a routine now that you've developed um, when working with? I mean, it's it's one thing to look at pieces that are you know sort of the standard canon that have uh, period styles that we do, you know, that kind of thing. But starting so with something that's, that's super fresh, it's never been performed fully, I mean, it's, a, it's a wildly different process. And how, where, yeah. What's your routine now with, with a world premiere kind of setup? Um, that, it, that depends somewhat on the process, but there's the, the major blocks of that are that you have to be able to learn music quickly and me and not just learn notes and rhythms but I mean learn the shape of a piece quickly mm. because you're never this is the thing I mean when I'm doing standard repertoire something that already exists I can get a score whenever I want to get a score right <laughs> depending on the piece like when I knew I was conducting Dr. Atomic I got a score a year out yeah right because I needed time to start digesting it right yeah so basically that's up to me or you know I mean I'm conducting proficients in Santa Fe well basically it's up to me when I start reviewing that score right. you know and so but with this I mean the deadlines are much closer right to the workshop so um, and then if you know if the deadline is not met which is frequently the case right life happens um, that's less time mm-hmm so you have to be able to learn scores quickly and, and to quickly grasp what's going on in the in the kind of the overall arc of the piece. Yeah. And so that's part of it is just having the skills to look at it, to know what you need to look at and what you don't need to fuss with mm-hmm. and to know what changes actually will, what suggestions or alterations will have the biggest impact in the early stages of a piece. Yeah, and uh, it's really gratifying work. I I think for me, I find it exhausting. I find workshops exhausting because you know if there's a if there's a piece that exists that has a performance tradition and some sort of history, whether you know it or not, it exists as a piece, right? right. When I pick up a score to any piece of standard rep, that's the piece. Yeah, I mean, we could maybe argue a little bit about style or this or, oh, should that be a, you know, B flat in that scene in Tosca or B natural, you know, whatever. Yeah. But the but the piece is there. Yeah. Um, and whereas when you're workshopping a piece, you have to, you have to be in it to lead it effectively 
with the people in the room, but you also have to have this, I don't really have a term for it, but kind of zooming out to sort of an eagle eye view uh-huh. where you can see the thing as a whole. And what happens when you do that is that introduces a ton of possibility in between what's actually happening and what could be there. Because you're also asking questions, is, is this good, what is here? Do we need to alter what's here? And, and though that's on a macro or micro level, right? Do we need to rearrange this scene a little bit? Do we need to just adjust this line a little bit? Is it the pitches? Is it the prosody? Is it the tessitura? Is it, you know, is it a word that doesn't sing well that can be, have an, you know, another word can be used? Um, so you have that, but then there, you're also in the same, at the same time thinking, what's not here that could be here? Mm. that would help facilitate the storytelling. Is there a scene missing? Yeah. Is there a transition missing to get us from A to B smoothly or to make sure that the audience understands this, this point very clearly? So you're, you, in a way, so you have to come some, from something very concrete because you do have a score in front of you, but you also at the same time have to come from a place of nothing. Mm-hmm. That anything could happen and in this process, everything did, right? We got rid of entire things. We restructured other entire scenes. There were parts where we were like, we need something here. This is not clear. There needs to be another scene or, or you know, a partial scene here to kind of help you know, make this make sense. And that is, it's fascinating work, but it's mentally incredibly taxing. Yeah. Because your brain is operating on so many different levels. And for me, I think that's what, and I don't know, this is, I mean, world premiere seven or eight for me, I think. That's what really the muscles that have taken time to develop um, is learning how to do that. Yeah. Um, because that's when you can be really effective with the composer and the librettist. Mm. Because you're the first point of contact as a performer. Mm-hmm. As someone who actually has to take the score and bring it to life. Yeah. Right? I, I'm that I'm the one who guides that process. And so sometimes that involves facilitating conversation between a performer and a composer. Um, or sometimes that, that yeah. me that's me saying you really don't want to do this. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there have been times, and, yes. and, 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 and different composers, I mean, some are open to that, some are not. Joel has been really terrific about that where I, we developed a deep bond of trust early. And so I can say, I know why you did this, but that's not going to get you what you want mm-hmm. in the end. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's about an eight bar phrase. Sometimes it's about a page. Sometimes it's about one note Yeah, that I'm like, Let's take out that note or with your blessing, I'm changing these articulations, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, I don't know, it's a really cool thing of how to get something off the page like that and, and help realize their vision. Yeah. How much dialogue is there between performer, you, and composer um, with something, something new? Um, you know, are you... In the workshop phase, is there a lot of bouncing off of, of like, because you mentioned Tessitura, and I know that when I've performed some stuff with composers before, I'd say, well, you know, 
I'm an abnormally high baritone. Right. So I can hit this, but for me to hit this, it's going to be loud, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, right. And that kind of thing and that kind of dialogue that um, may not be the first thing on the composer's mind and say, oh, that is a factor. Let's talk about that. How much of that kind of dialogue is there at this scale? Because when I do that kind of stuff, it's a, it's a you know, art song kind of thing rather than full opera. Look, I, I, it, it's, it's all the time and it, it's deep and, and it went through the end of the final dress last night. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the final dress rehearsal for the fix last night, we altered the end of act one. All right. Not <laughs> big. I mean, it was like a small little trim and then moving the final chord, yeah. you know, but, but we did that at 1020 last night. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did it twice so that they could do it on stage. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, that's so that it, 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 but you know, that that has been throughout the entire process, things like that, because also when Joel was writing this, specific people were not really cast. Okay. So over the, you know, we had an act one workshop about, I don't know, a year and a half ago. Act two workshop probably 10 months ago, orchestral workshop four months ago, let's say. And so as the cast became clearer, that also solidified. And there are even things like with Kelly Markgraf, who sings Ring Lardner. There's a line of his that we moved up after Wednesday night's first dress rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So last night he, you know, had a different, I mean, we took something up the octave. Yeah. Because like you're saying, I mean, it depends on range. And there was just one line that was not speaking at all, right? Because... It was just kind of at the bottom of his range. He was focusing it as best he could, but where he was on stage, where he had to be on stage, you know, kind of how the orchestration lay of the land was, it just wasn't working. Yeah. And and so it wasn't, I couldn't just tell the orchestra to play softer. I couldn't, you know, and so we just, Joel said, we're going to, we're just going to alter this. So, so there's a lot of that, but that kind of went through the whole process. As the cast became clearer, then Joel could alter musically and adjust to kind of tailor fit to those singers. Mm-hmm. So depending on where their voice sat specifically, um, y- you know, and what their strengths were and what their, what their just des- desires were, right? Yeah. And that's what's so cool about this process is one of those singers can go and say, you know, for me, <laughs> moving through the passaggio here is tricky, especially trying to sing that word. Or, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. All these finer yeah. points of it. And so it's kind of amazing that you have this opportunity you know, to collaborate and then have something. It's like, it's, like, it's like going, the difference between going and buying an off-the-rack suit and trying to alter it to get to fit or actually going and having a custom suit made. Yeah. It's one of those reasons why I continually tell any musician, no matter what they do, whether they're a singer, whether they're in the orchestra, whatever, try and work with composers on new music because we can't hang out with Mozart. Like yeah. It's not, and that's, it's, a, it's a completely different animal. Yeah, but you know what? This brings up a really fascinating thing for me that I, I had done a few world premieres, but the first time I did one where there was a libretto workshop was at Houston Grand Opera, and it was a coffin in Egypt with Ricky Ian Gordon, um, Lenny Foley had wrote the libretto and directed, and Frederica von Stata was the uh, principal character. And we had a, a libretto workshop. 
for that. Uh, which is, they literally hired actors yeah. to come in and read the libretto. And there, there, there was not a score in sight. I mean, music wasn't written yet. Yeah. And that was really cool. And that taught me something important that I needed to, in my own studies of the standard repertoire, um, divorce the text and the music for a while. Yeah. And so I remember I was doing a, a Giovanni after around that same period, or a Cozy, I can't remember. Um, and a piece, but a piece that I knew well and I conducted several times and, and I, I knew it. And I just, I, instead of initially getting out my score and just paging through it and reviewing it, I just took a libretto. Mm. And I just thought, I'm just gonna actually spend some time with the libretto and really, really approach it from that angle. And it was interesting when I did that and then went back to the score because then I was, the questions I began to ask were different because then I was looking at the text and saying, oh, okay, that's why he did that. That's why it's set that way. Or why did it set, why did he set it that way? You know, I never thought about that. Clearly, he's expressing an intention that's different than what I had previously thought. Right. And so it, 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 it really enriched the way that I work with text. Yeah. And it made me a much more textually, uh, you know, driven conductor. Yeah. Not that I wasn't before and not that, you know, understanding the text wasn't important to me or understanding the nuances of it. Right. But I just, it really deepened the way I approach a score because it's really easy, at least I won't speak for anyone else, but for me when I open a score to just get extra musical or to, or to just to get musical yeah. and, and look at it and then I'm analyzing it, you know, phrasal analysis and the architecture and then all of this and then I'm like orchestration, you know, and you know, and it's, it's just easy to get into that mode right. and then you're viewing things and of course then you sort of, you know, photographically memorize, you know, what page things are and, you know, like, <laughs> and then oboe, you know, oboe comes in here in this part of the phrase and then this is, you know, but really actually it's been cool to kind of go back and, and now really even like with Pearl Fishers, reviewing Pearl Fishers, you know, to conduct in Santa Fe this summer of actually just taking a libretto and spending some time with the libretto and, and reading and then picking up the score again. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's deepened my, you know, doing world premieres has deepened my approach to the standard repertoire in a way that I didn't anticipate. Yeah, that's a really cool way of looking at it. I, never, I wouldn't have considered it that way. It's great to, um, it's great to see that working on new music affects the way you look at everything. I mean, that's, right. that's awesome. And because you're working, your brain is working so overtime on everything, Yeah, stuff is going to, I'm sure stuff just kind of pops up out of the woodwork and like, oh, I see this. I've seen it a hundred times, but I see this for the first time. Yeah, it is great. It, it's really, and as I mentioned earlier, I, that's the kind of thing that I love about this craft. You know, that's why I do it Yeah. in the end is... I mean, I like public performances. I like performing for an audience <laughs> and that, you know, it feels really nice when they, you know, applaud and, right. you know, yeah. and then when people say nice things, it feels really good. But I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with just the craft of what we do. Yeah. And about being better than that and, and um, knowing that 
I spend most of my days working on music that's way better than I am and that there's just a wealth of things to derive from that yeah and I that's yeah I mean, how fortunate are we yeah so let's go back a little bit um, how did you how did you end up here meaning what's the what are the broad strokes that that ended up with you conducting yeah, boy, <laughs> a series of sordid decisions. So. <laughs> um, so I grew up in central Kansas okay, in a town called Great Bend, which is called Great Bend because there's a large bend in the Arkansas River. Not the Arkansas River, by right. the way, the Arkansas, Arkansas River. River. Um, and so I grew up uh, in a family. I have three siblings, and my parents wanted all of us to study piano plus one other instrument. They were just amateur musicians, but they, they, they just, it was really for edification. Yeah. They had no desire for any of us to be professional musicians. That wasn't really on their radar at all. It was just something they wanted their children to do. Yeah. So, um, so we did that and, um, yeah, so I, but you know, growing up in an underserved community, my first exposure to live classical music was the um, the community concert tours that Cami used to do. Okay. <laughs> and this is where you know Cami would sign artists, and they would be like, "We got to season these people up, get them some experience," and they would just put them on the road, right? Yeah. Their booking department would just put them out there. Yeah. And I mean, they were talking. I mean, like they were coming in playing in like the municipal auditorium, gymnatorium in right, Great exactly. Bend, Kansas. You know, <laughs> a town of fifteen or twenty thousand people, right? In February, right? right? <laughs> you know, right? and so, but that was my exposure uh, because I mean, there was a public radio station that you could get decent reception most of the time. Um, but as far as my exposure to live music, that w that was it. And that was the first time I heard an orchestra play, was the Wichita State University Symphony came and played um, a concert on the community concert series in Great Bend. Um, I think I was probably 14 when I heard the Wichita Symphony play for the first time. I mean, I, I remember they played Scheherazade. Um, and so I, but, you know, it's still, I didn't, it wasn't really on my radar that people did this for a living. Mm -hmm. My mom says I was always interested in conducting and, you know, like watching my, because my dad directed the church choir. And I remember asking him questions about why he would do certain gestures. Yeah. So apparently I was curious about it. I don't totally, you know, remember any sort of obsession or anything. You know, yeah. I'm not in one of these, it was like at eight, I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to be the maestro of the world, you know. Um, so Toscanini and said, that's me. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. You know, I'm not like my mentor, Lauren Mazzella, who's, you know, conducting in short pants, you know, in front of the, you know, NBC Symphony, you know. Right. Um, and um, so I was um, playing, my sister was studying violin and I was, I would, she started studying at a state university a little over an hour away with the teacher there. So I would go and play her lessons and I was in high school and, he said, well, what are, you, what are you, are you planning to pursue music and piano? You know, you're a good pianist. And I said, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. I said, how do you do that? What, do you, what does one do, right? Because only professional musicians I knew were teachers, were 
piano teachers or school music teachers, yeah. right? And um, he said, well, you would go and go to school and like if you came here, you would do a degree in piano and then depending on what path you took, you'd probably do at least one graduate degree and et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, oh, well, that's kind of a cool idea. And I started thinking about it, but I had tons of other interests. Um, I was really interested in film and um, you know, I was working for a professional sound company. And so I, I ended up taking three years off between high school and college. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I did a lot of things. I moved to Nashville. I did, you know, I worked in commercial music for a while. Yeah. Um, I thought I might go to culinary school, um, and I, you know, there were just a lot of things. And I, I, what I didn't know was that I wasn't. I, I wanted some life experiences before I made any of those hardcore decisions. Yeah. So I was still very active musically, but just not in, a, you know, the classical, you know, realm at all. Yeah. Um, and then after a period, I decided that I was just going to start studying piano again. Not with any particular outcome. So I started actually practicing again and, mm -hmm. and studying piano. And then um, I really came to a point where I, I was either going to go to school and study music or go to culinary school. And I actually was accepted to both. So, um, and I, well, I chose music school. And... Um, it was kind of for me the defining moment was when I had the final interview for culinary school. The, it was a very famous chef, and he said, he said, well, the question you have to ask yourselves is, do you want to be spending Friday and Saturday nights behind a stove for the rest of your life? And I thought, well, I could, but I think I'd rather spend Friday and Saturday nights making music for the rest of my life. There you go. Um, <clears throat> and so. So I went to undergraduate at a small liberal arts school in Kansas called Southwestern College that's in southeastern Kansas. Um, so figure that one out. You know. um, and it was great. It was a liberal arts school. I knew the piano teacher uh, really well because my sister had studied with him and I had a little bit. And it was, a, it was perfect for me because I needed to find, I needed to create my own path. Mm -hmm. And... I would not have thrived in a big in a conservatory environment yeah. at that point because I was also still really interested in commercial music and all kinds of things and I was you know interested in philosophy I was interested in you know a variety of disciplines and so I went and I was studying piano hardcore practicing all the time um, and and then the big breakthrough I had well I had a bit of a physical injury that set me back pianistically. But at, at the same time, I was realizing that I loved making music with other people. Mm -hmm. I was obsessed with it. And that me, you know, as a pianist, spending hours and hours and hours a day in a room with the instrument was not gratifying. Yeah. That it, in just doing that and then me going out and doing it by myself on a stage was not gratifying. Yeah. That I was willing to put in the hard work and the practice and the discipline when it meant collaborating with other musicians because that's what really set me on fire. Mm -hmm. Whether that was playing for singers or playing chamber music or, you know, singing in the choir or whatever that was. That's where I found the most gratification musically. So... Um, 
also in my degree, you know, I took a conducting course, you know, kind of the ubiqu ubiquitous, you right. know, here's, you know, down, left, right, up, that's four, four. Here, here are the okay, four now patterns three, you're going to need to learn. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> you know, and, you know, six is a tennis ball bouncing this way and then the other way, you know, I mean. Yeah. Um, Having all kinds it, of flashbacks right, right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I did that and we had to conduct like a little group of singers and then yep. I did the advanced conducting course and then they actually put you in front of like the choir and then the band. And that was a really interesting time because I thought, oh, this kind of, this feels like a really natural thing. And they respond to me. Um, you know, there's a, there's, the communication is working here mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Not that, not that I knew anything. Right. Because um, I didn't. And so I, I got really interested in conducting. And so I, not to, you know, I'm still in rural Kansas here. But I started going to as many rehearsals as I could of like the Wichita Symphony. Mm -hmm. I called up every professional conductor within, a, I don't know, probably 250 mile radius, which was three. Uh, <laughs> you know. and, um, and I talked to, I called the music director of the Oklahoma City Philharmonic. I'd never met him. I didn't, never, didn't know anything about the orchestra, but I thought, well, that's not that far away, about two and a half hours. And, so I called the office, the Oklahoma City Philharmonic office, right? Just this is the chutzpah. I was just, I just phoned up, and I, of course, was expecting, you know, voicemail, right? right? <laughs> and I said, um, could I speak with, you know, Maestro Levine? And they're like, um, you know, again, fully anticipating, I'll forward you to his voicemail, and they're like, oh yeah, sure, he's right here, and I'm like. Oh, damn it. What do I do now? I actually have to yeah. have this conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I thought I was going to get away with the voicemail. Um, and um, I just explained myself. I said, my name is Tim Myers. I'm studying you know, music at Southwestern College, and I'm interested in conducting, and I want to know more about it, and can you help me? And he said, yeah, I will. That's he awesome. said, here's what you're going to do. This is the program we're playing next week. Go to the library and get scores. Come down. Get here a little early. And we'll chat about scores a little bit. Then you can sit in the rehearsal and, you know, see what's going on. So I finished class, got in the car, drove two and a half hours down to Oklahoma City. Talked to him. He's an incredibly generous man, excellent musician, excellent conductor. And he put a chair right in the middle of the orchestra oh, that's awesome. for me. You know, which this was significant because I was primarily a pianist. I had mm. also studied some cello and some violin, but piano was the only thing that I was playing at a professional level. Mm -hmm. And so I hadn't grown up in a youth orchestra, right? My time didn't have one. So I hadn't grown up playing in ensembles and seeing the inner workings of an orchestra or even a, or a band or anything, Yeah, right? And so for me to actually sit in there and watch him rehearse the prelude to Tristan and how he handled it and how the orchestra functioned as an organism. And, um, and I never, I'll never forget after that rehearsal, he, <laughs> we went to a Dunkin' Donuts nearby because that was the only thing open. And we were sitting there and he's, you know, talking and, he said, well, he said, if you pick up a baton right now, I'll just, I'll tell you whether or not you're ever going to be a conductor. <laughs> and I actually was cheeky enough to say, 
Well, we can skip that part because even if you told me I wouldn't be, I would do it anyway. <laughs> and um, he said, good for you. And he, you know, he remembers that moment now. And I mean, we're still in touch and he's so proud of, um, you know, what I've done. And, and, and he's, he always, he says to me, he says, I always knew you were going to make it. <laughs> and, um, but you know, that started a relationship and mm -hmm. I did that in, in many days during their concert weeks, I would go down there come back and get home at 12.30, go to class, go back, because all their rehearsals were in the evenings. Yeah. But, you know, that allowed me to learn what a conductor does. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, he had this analogy of being a conductor is like being a lawyer. You know, we have this idea of, you know, Tom Cruise in the courtroom and, you know, all this, you know, I mean, objecting and all this passionate arguments. And, yeah. that, you know, I mean, a lawyer spends 95% of their time in a library and right. studying and reading. And the small percentage is actually doing it, but the the real art of it is what you do off the podium. Yeah, and he ingrained that in me from day one, and I'm really grateful for that. The other thing that he ingrained in me is that a score is just a bunch of notes. It's it's a it's a you know fairly primitive form of communication called notation, and that what you do with that is the music. So he really ingrained a lot of things in me and, and um, you know, I'm forever grateful to him for that. And so I, th by, by then I was like fully on board with the mm -hmm. conducting thing. I, I, I started to read, of course, all the memoirs and biographies and autobiographies. Yeah. And, and, you know, I had this realization that um, with the exception of Leonard Bernstein, really, Every conductor I admired had gone through the opera house. Okay. Right? Yeah. If you kind of think back, like Schulte, Pabato, uh, you know, all, all, I mean, Levine, all, I mean, all of these, you know, all of these greats, you know, Muti, um, they, you know, all, I mean, were really shaped, forged, you know, largely in the opera house. Mm -hmm. And, so I thought, well, maybe there's something to that. And so I ended up, instead of going to conducting workshops, I, the summer between my junior and senior years of college, I went to the Brevard Music Festival in North Carolina. Yeah. And I, that was the first year they had a collaborative piano program, and Martin Katz was coming to do a residency. And that blew my mind. It completely shifted me musically. Like, that really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And um, so that was a formulative time. So, and at the same time, I decided, okay, I, if I'm going to do this, I need to be a better musician. Like, there's no point in me going and getting a conducting degree if I don't have anything to say. Yeah. And so I did not audition for um, graduate conducting programs. I decided to keep studying piano and chamber music. And so I went to Florida State to audition, and I, had, I was auditioning for the Chamber Music and Accompanying Program, but the head of the opera program, Douglas Fisher, was in my audition. And he was looking through my materials after I played, and they were kind of interviewing me a little bit, and he said, you're a conductor. And I said, yeah, I said, I am, but not yet. Like, like I definitely, that is what I will do, but I, that's not what I want to focus on right now. And he said, well, how about this? He said, why don't you come here? I'll give you a full ride and an assistantship if you, you know, will be a graduate assistant in the opera 
program as a pianist and coach, you can do the opera coaching program, you can still study piano with Carolyn Bridger, and you'll have your education nice. paid for. And he said, I'll put you on the podium. I showed up, I didn't know very much opera repertoire at all. I knew a ton of leader, but I, I don't know, I knew a handful of arias. And the, I think my first month I learned 60 arias. Yeah. And all of my weekends were spent in a practice room just playing through anthologies, learning repertoire, and then um, you know, learning the languages, studying with him, working an opera workshop, um, coaching, you know, learning how to coach singers. Um, and then even you know my last year there and my lessons with him, all we would do is I would go into his office and he would go over to the shelf and pull off a score that I'd never seen and he would put it on the piano and we would go through it. That's awesome. Like I would play and he would sing and we'd just do like act one of Romeo and Juliet, yeah. you know, act two of Samson and Delilah, you know, act three of Traviata, like and just, and I just soaked up repertoire. Yeah. It's nice to hear the the process that people go through because everybody's story is a little bit different. Everybody yeah. has a different path. So you've worked with singers for a, a, quite a while. Yeah. Um, what do you look for in the singer-conductor relationship? Whether you're working with young artists or you're working with seasoned pros, you know, what are you, what are you looking for in that dynamic? I can tell you, well, let's move beyond preparation, right? Yeah. That's a given, right. right? I mean, just you, yeah. If you want to be a pro, if, yeah. If you want to, if you want to you're, you're work, you, you're prepared. Yeah. Okay. So let's just that's, that. Let's say that's a given. The number one thing I look for, and this is this does whatever age, whatever experience level, it's that they're generating ideas and music and musicality. You know, as a conductor, I mean, it's it's not lost on me that I'm the only one at the end of the performance that, outside of a few grunts here or there, I haven't made a sound. Yeah, I certainly haven't made a sound that's contributed to the performance, right? I have a gift for inspiring sound, right? And I have a gift for gathering sound into a cohesive form. Yeah. Other people make the sound though, and it's important um, that artists generate. And I think, especially for young singers, when I talk to them, I say you have to come with an idea. An idea. You have to come having made some choices. Mm -hmm. Any choice. Right? For me, it's not about the right or wrong. That's what we discuss in rehearsal. Right. But is that you are generating as an artist on your own, right, when you walk into the room. Mm -hmm. Because for me, as an artist, you know, you're always making a choice. Not making a choice is also a choice. It's a absolutely. bad. It's a bad one. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. Absolutely. It's a disempowering yeah. choice um, to not make a choice. So, you know, I that's the biggest thing for me. I love working with artists who generate and who come ready to work with an idea, with a passion for an idea or an approach, because then it's just that's just like putting gasoline on a fire. Yeah. Right. It just. I mean, automatically you're operating at a higher level. Yeah, and um, you know, part of that is also expectation from me. Yeah, that that is how it works. Um, and you know, I learned that working with Lauren Mazel is, I mean, a he was super famous, and a lot of people were really scared of him. So that that, <laughs> that generated a lot. Yeah, right. But you know, the way he worked with musicians, there was an expectation of that. He was very clear: they have a job, I have a job, and we do these jobs together. Mm -hmm. 
you know, if it says in the part, play piano, I shouldn't have to continually stop and say, play piano. Yeah. That's their part of the deal. We can talk about what kind of piano that is. What's the color of that piano? What's the texture of the sound there? What's the emotional content of the sound there? Right, we can talk about those and we can define what that means. But as far as a general marking, play what's in the ink. Right. Right? And then we'll go from there. Yeah. And um, so I try and inspire that. Yeah. Um, you know, and especially if I'm in a, a you know a music director, to that we that we start there yeah. because when you start there, you're automatically generating at a higher level, right? Because you're not answering so many questions that are already some sometimes answered. Yeah. Right. And and then you also are in a headspace of okay, let's put meaning behind this yeah. and our work together. So, um, so I, this, for me, it's hands down, I mean, is an artist generating? And because that's also something that you feel in the house, right? When, when, sure. when, you know, in a, when you're in a performance where it's always very clear when you're in a performance where it's sort of all of these different sides, whether it's just because they don't agree on what to do or they haven't rehearsed enough or whatever the, you know, whatever it is, right? There are, you know, a multitude of reasons. But then there are also performances where everybody's on the same page. Yeah. And I think it's unstoppable. Yeah. And so that's what I want to do in this art form, right? I, I'm, that's what I'm passionate about. Going back to my school days where I realized that I was passionate about making music and performing with other people, it's the same thing. Yeah. You know, I'm just a hell of a lot better at it now than I was then. Yeah. And I know more about it and I've got more of it in my blood. Yeah. I, I love to hear you say these things because from a singer's perspective, you know, we, we don't do our rehearsals with the orchestra for the most part. Right. Um, we don't work with the conductor regularly. We have our coaches and there's a, it's, it's, it's weird. There's kind of a, a pedestal that the conductors are put on. Yeah. And I know that a lot of young singers are afraid to talk to the conductor, approach the conductor and say, I have these ideas, or to even let it show in the music as they're performing it the first time they work with a conductor so the, con the conductor can see, oh, this is kind of what they're bringing to the table. We can either work with this or I can nix it, we're doing this thing instead. Exactly. You know, yeah. but if they don't bring anything, if right. they don't start a dialogue, whether it's an actual dialogue with words or a musical dialogue, you, I know I've seen many, many times young singers who are just terrified. Yeah, sure to deal with the conductor on any level whatsoever. And on the other end of that, when the conductor says anything to them at all, that's nice, a little bit of praise, or a thanks for that, or I enjoyed performing with you, blows their mind. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course, no, I mean, it can be intimidating. Um, yeah, but it's, you know, I understand that, you know, yeah. and of course I've been in situations where, I mean, the first time I met Lauren Mazel and he saw me, I was terrified, yeah. you know. The first time some of my friends worked with Martin Katz, same thing. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, absolutely. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, you just, because um, all of the things are going through your mind of, I'm such an imposter and I shouldn't be here and can I just crawl into a closet somewhere and maybe they'll forget, you right. know. Like, I wonder if I just ran and got into a car right now and left if they would, how long it would take them to know I was gone. You know, I mean, of course you have all of these, but I don't know. The thing is for me is I have such a mad respect for singers and, you know, orchestral musicians and these people with whom I collaborate. And 
you know, I want to empower them, right? I want to help them see something that maybe they didn't see for themselves before. Yeah. That something is possible that they didn't envision. And I find that really gratifying when I can help facilitate that process for them. And, you know, they're the stars. And uh, I, I think, you know, I just, I mean, can you, I mean, just for me, just the whole feat of singing yeah. is remarkable. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I just, I want to inspire people to, you know, grow, but part of that is coming and being willing and ready to generate. Yeah. Part of the reason that I do this podcast very specifically is to facilitate dialogues that wouldn't have happened otherwise or to bring to light certain things like the, the fact that you want to hear input from the singers and that kind of stuff. And that's why my podcast is not limited to just singers. Right. I think, you know, we going through a career, you're at different levels, right? And as you grow through these levels, the relation, the, the relationships also are different, right? Yeah. And so if you're a, a kind of, you get ensconced kind of at a level and you know, you know, a lot of the players in the game. And then, you know, if you're kind of jumping up, then that's a whole, there's new relationships to be made, right? Yeah. Or if you expand, you know, and then so say, okay, Europe's going to become more a priority. Well, that's a whole new set of relationships to develop. And so it can, it can be intimidating, but yeah, it is. Um, I try and remember that if people have given you an opportunity, they're really grateful when that investment goes somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm so pumped that Jackie Eccles is making her Met debut next season singing Mozetta. Yeah. Because she did it for the first time in North Carolina Opera. Yeah. When I cast her. And I'm not in no way trying to take credit for that. She's done all the hard work. I mean, she's done, you know, and, right. and she's, but, but it's, I'm just like, yes, that's amazing. Right. That makes my year. Yeah. Right? That just, that she's having that success, you yeah. know? And so, you know, when you invest in someone, yeah, I mean, it's, you you want to hear from them. I want to know they're doing well, and um, you know, and that's also. But you know, at the same time, you can approach a conductor or let's say an artistic director or someone and say, "Could I get your thoughts on this? You know my work, right? Could I get your thoughts on this?" And it's not like saying, "Hey, will you hire me to do this?" Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, and so it's a different conversation, and it puts you. On a, on a different level. It puts you on a conversational level with them. And, and, it, and it shifts the dynamic. And, and it took me a while to figure out that, you know, like when I'm talking to Patrick Summers, he actually wants to know what I think. Yeah. You know, or Francesca Zambello, when I write and say, hey, I'm doing this piece called The Fix and it's awesome. And she writes back and she's like, oh, cool. This sounds amazing. Like, keep me posted. You know, I want to know about it. And, you know, that this, I mean, that's, the, that it's a conversation that's ongoing. Yeah. And it's just about developing those things as a conversation and being creative about that. Yeah. Because all of these people like what they, well, most of them like what they do too, right? I mean, and... Um, you would at least hope. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, and that they want people to do well. Yeah. You know, and, well, and they want people to be successful and happy and to, and to continue on the art form they've put so much time and effort into. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, as Alan mentioned yesterday in his interview, he said, you know, we... When you come into an audition setting, we're not hoping that you fail. Right, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> we're hoping that you are the best version of yourself that day. <laughs> yep, yep. That's, that's what we're looking for. That's right, that's right. 
And yeah, it's just, you know, figuring out how to get rid of the other voices in your head. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and for, I, you know, for, a, I think, many, including me, that's one of the biggest persistent challenges. Yeah. Is how do you turn off the noise? Um, and I've, you know, I think I've, as an artist, made some good headway in that, specifically in the last two years. Um, but it took me a while to start getting a handle on that. Yeah. Yeah. This day and age, I just feel like we have so much more noise than oh, it's 15 insane, years man. ago. It's insane. I mean, and, and looking at how much we need to do for our own PR, and it's not a matter of always being on, but it's a matter of always being aware. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, and, and um, you know, I a few years ago started working with an executive coach. Mm-hmm. Um, it to, and I actually created a strategic plan for myself yeah. and my career. And um, through that process, I learned that you have to view the pursuit of the career with the same creativity you view the pursuit of the music. I love that. Right? So that soon, because otherwise I get, I, I'm, and I'll just speak for myself here, I get stuck. Right? And then I'm like, well, does really all the, really does the social media have to matter? Really, does me emailing and following up with that person have to matter? It does. And, and there are ways that you can look at that that kind of gets the same creative juices going for you as actually doing the craft mm-hmm. um, and actually standing in front of an orchestra. And is it the same? No. But there are different, you know, I, I had to really shift my perspective there to realize that there were people who hire conductors and there were conductors being hired. (laughs) And where was I in that mix? And was I being hired as much as I wanted or at the places where I wanted, Uh right? And the answer to that was no. Yeah. (laughs) But then if you look at that, the only common denominator is me. Right. Right. (laughs) So, so, you know, I mean, what do you do from there? Okay, there you have to learn how, okay, how do I shift that? They don't see me as the guy to hire. Right. Why is that? It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not as good as the other people they're hiring, but there are other things involved. Yeah. Right. And so I don't know. That's a whole nother. That's a whole nother podcast. Right. You know? yeah. Like that's a whole nother. You know. Um, but it's but it's totally true. It's absolutely true. Yeah. And so if you know we can figure out how to view all of these things through a lens of creativity, it's a lot more fun. Absolutely. So and. I mean, thanks for doing this and putting the word out there. And I appreciate you coming you know, on and, and taking your time in the middle of prepping for a world premiere. <laughs> <laughs> We're locked and loaded, man. I mean, it's, uh, it's going to be good tomorrow. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. For more information about today's guest, visit our website at operabizpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show with two interview episodes and two social media sound bites each month. You can find me directly on Instagram at the Beard and Lens, and the podcast Instagram is at Opera Biz. Thanks for listening to the Opera Biz podcast.